This is the Mentor Shift Podcast, coming out every second Thursday with Mickey Fahair. Hey, man. I'm so excited to have you here. This is Mentor Shift Thursday again, and this is your host, Mickey Fahair. I want to thank you profusely for listening to this week's podcast. If you're here, you're probably like me. Sometimes you feel like as a man, you have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders alone. I started this work because I believe we can help each other to learn and grow together and share some of this weight. If you like the sound of this, please subscribe to the Mentorship Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred choice of listening for podcasts. I hope to be with you on the way to work or in your living room or when you're running or walking, whenever you fancy listening to podcasts. Let's share the weight and learn together. And now please join me in welcoming James McKeever. It's really wonderful to have you here. You know, we have a lot to talk about for many reasons, but one of them being that you come from an interesting family background where you have African-American and Central European heritage. I also know that you come from a very difficult childhood from a very poor neighborhood and you kind of broke out of that and eventually became involved in social justice. You've worked for the county probation department. You have been involved in work with the National Committee for Community and Justice, fighting racism, xenophobia, homophobia. You also have a PhD and you're currently a professor of sociology in Los Angeles Pierce. Pretty much all your work seems to be focused around helping minorities, helping minority youth. And so welcome again. And I wanted to start just by asking you, how did masculinity as a question come into your life? What sort of role did that play for you? Well, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, masculinity has played a big portion in my life, um, you know, uh, just since I was a kid, uh, you know, and the concepts of masculinity, questioning masculinity, um, uh, you know, I, I grew up with a mother who was a feminist, and um, most of the time it was my mother and my sister in the house with my father intermittently coming in and going out. But um, it, it made a big difference, and it kind of like really led me in a lot of different directions, um, positive directions, um, turning some things that were very negative into my life and ability to be a mentor for others and be a father for my children. So, um, yeah, this is this is a very important topic. and. I have a PhD in sociology with my specialty being in race, class, and gender. And I'm a community college professor at Los Angeles Pierce College, where I feel like really lucky that I get to work with a great group of students and give back to my community. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's so good to hear that, you know, you, you found a place where, you know, you can be yourself, which is, by the way, more than what a lot of men that I work with get to be able to say about themselves. One of the things that I hear from men a lot is, you know, I, I don't know whose life I'm living. You know, maybe it's my mother's, maybe it's my father's, maybe it's someone else's life, but I don't quite know who I am and what I want. And, you know, I'm in the middle of my life, for example. I often hear that you know, I'm, I'm 40 something and I, I just don't know who I am. So may, maybe just to start with, how did you figure out who you are? That's a, yeah. that's a great question. Um, and by the way, this is something that I, I didn't talk about or think about until I, um, I was a probation officer for nine years. And I remember 
when you work in juvenile hall, they tell you, tell the kids why you're there. And I didn't want to be a member of law enforcement. I wasn't fond of law enforcement. Law enforcement had harassed me and literally put guns in my face at times. Um, and I, and it wasn't really something I wanted to do, but I wanted to help kids. And they said, share why you're there. And that's when I first started sharing my story with those kids. And I remember the first probably month and month and a half, it was very emotional for me, even breaking out in tears at times and stuff. And, and with these 16 to 18 year old young men who were some who were gangsters and stuff, but they appreciated that. So I started telling them that I grew up in a family that was extremely violent. Um, my father um, was extremely violent towards my mother, extremely violent towards us. And my mother had later become violent towards us as well, um, on a more regular basis than my father, but not nearly as horrific as the violence my father had. But I remember we were living in Pacoima, which is a, which at the time was a low-income African-American community. And um, my dad would come home drunk and every night, uh, you know, uh, every few nights and stuff. And my, um, my sister, who slept in the same room with us, would hear my dad come in and she would hear my dad start to yell at my mother and hit my mother. And then we, she would crawl into my bed. And I was only about four or five years old at the time. And my and we I remember us sitting together holding each other and whispering for him to stop. We didn't want him to really hear us because we were afraid of him, but we wanted him to stop. And then um, one day he beat my mother so bad that when I was five that we ended up leaving our house in Pacoima and we ended up moving to North Hollywood. And I remember watching my mom um, at my grandparents' house with her nose bloodied and her eyes swollen shut and thinking to myself, I am never going to be like my father. And that was like the beginning of my journey at that point. Now, honestly, my mother, who had become an alcoholic and so on, was not um, necessarily a fantastic role model either. So what ended up happening was, um, as my sister would say, I began to raise myself. You know, and my sister was nine months younger than me, but we talk about this a lot. And I started to think about who I want to be as a person. But um, I also grew up um, in, um, in, a, in a time when it was after the Black Power Movement had started. And um, we were the first generation who didn't have to be called the N-word and take it. And um, we fought, you know, when people called us that word. You know, and I was taught in my family to fight. And I taught, was taught in my family that, it, that it's not just um, a good thing that you fight. It's just an expectation that you stand up for yourself, that you defend yourself, that you don't let people push you around. No one takes your lunch money. No one does this. No one does that. And, and so, yeah, I, I fought a lot. Um, I, I never got suspended except I didn't, until I got to high school, but I got lucky a couple times. Cause I, I remember one fight I had in elementary school where it was with the, over at this gang related thing when I was in elementary school and the, and I didn't get expelled, but the principal told my mother to find me another school, the, the officially not expelling me, but asking me to leave the school. And so we moved into a mostly white neighborhood that's when I started getting called the N-word, and I started fighting all the time then, too. And I remember one time when I was having a fight with this one white kid who called me the name, and there was this group of kids around us, and I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, maybe like 10 years old, 11 years old. And I remember thinking while I was beating this kid up, I was thinking these white kids are watching this and thinking, that's how those N-words are, you know, and so on. And I was thinking... Is this really accomplishing like what wow. I'm setting out to do? But I was still very violent. And um, when I got to junior high, um, what ended up happening was um, I, I, we were poor. 
and um, my mom was struggling and my dad wasn't around much, but didn't contribute financially to the household when he was. And um, what ended up happening was my, um, I, I started a gambling operation with a friend of mine. Okay. And my that's what my dad did for a living was he collected money for a gambler and stuff as well as he later became a drug dealer and, a, and, and he also dealt, he got guns to people in the community too. But, uh, at the, so I learned how to do that from listening to my dad and understanding how you're supposed to collect money and stuff and set point spreads and stuff. So I started doing that in junior high. And my friend and I in junior high started making about three to $500. Now, the way I got started with that was I needed seed money. And I told my mom, I said, look, can you just guarantee me that if I lose up to $200 this weekend that you can give me that money, but I'm not going to lose. And if I, and then you don't have to buy me like lunch or oh, I was getting free lunch, but you don't have to buy me us clothes. I can give money to my sister for my sister and stuff like that. And I convinced her that this would be a good thing. And she said, sure. And I know some people would look down on my mom and say, how could you do that? But I think when you're struggling and you're struggling to make ends meet and you don't know how to feed your kids, sometimes um, you will do anything you can to get out of poverty. And I think that was my mom's choice at that point was this could help you know, alleviate some of the stress on me. And then one day I almost got caught because I kept all the bets in a ledger. And that's when I decided to quit. And that was also the kind of difference between my brothers and my sisters was that, uh, and, and me was that I didn't, they all went to jail at least once in prison, including one for manslaughter. Um, um, and the thing is that I just quit before I got caught. I mean, I, I, I knew when things were starting to get a little hot and I just yeah. quit. But James, like, you know, what, what's amazing, what's amazing about this story is that, you know, you, you got a bunch of kids and they're all growing up in, in similar circumstances, same neighborhood, same parents. And here you are and you're saying, you know, I stopped before I get caught. But what's really intriguing is how, how did you do that? Like, how did you know when to stop? What, what made you, what was the difference? Yeah. That's a really great question because um, one of them was my brother Donald, who was my oldest brother and probably the scariest one in the family. Right? Mm -hmm. And um, but Donald was not that way with us, you know. And I remember Donald when he first got went to prison. He was eighteen, I was twelve, and he came out of prison and he sat down in a chair. He kind of like turned this chair around backwards, sat down in it, and he looked at me and he said, "James, they have sex in prison," and then he got up and walked away. Now, I didn't even know what to do with that information. I didn't know if it was consensual or non-consensual, but I was like, I am not going to prison at that point, right? And then my brother Jimmy was extremely kind, um, uh, probably the kindest out of our whole family. And he, um, he was too kind to be in our family. I, I mean, it really, he really suffered mentally at the hands of having to deal with that, uh, the, all these issues and being such a kind person. And that made a difference in my life too. But the biggest difference that made me in my life was this uh, gentleman named Bill Dusenberry. Because when I was 13, and I was still this, this dude at the time doing the gambling operation, and I was playing at, at this park called Valley Plaza, Bill asked me to coach. And at the time, teenagers didn't coach in the park. It was only adult parents who coached in the park. And the park back then was, was a mixture of being um, white working class and mostly white working class, but some uh, low-income low Latinos and African-Americans in the park, too. And here he was asking 
this African-American young boy who had a mustache and a big Afro at the time, you know, to coach. Right. And the parents oh, yeah. threw a fit. Yeah. The what? That's, yeah. That's, that's like unheard of at that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, or, absolutely. Uh, like, and he, he was African-American by the way, and an ex pro football player. And he, um, he, they, they called for a, a town hall meeting to make sure I didn't coach, which was really bizarre. I mean, really think about this kids trying to help, but so this group of parents, there was maybe 30 parents in there were complaining and saying they don't want me to coach and this and that. And the other thing, and Bill asked me to be at the meeting and he had me sitting right next to him. And this was hard for me to hear, but at the very end of it, I remember Bill pulling out this, this metal box and, and he, he puts the metal box on the table and he goes in here are all your checks and money make a line to my right and I will refund all your money. James coaches here from now on. And that made such a huge difference in my life to have this man stand up for me like that and put all this on the line. And I felt like, you know, it's emotional when I talk about it even now, but it, it, I felt like, you know, if Bill did that for me, I can't disappoint Bill. You know, I have to do something for someone else now. And I started coaching and I've been coaching ever since I've been coaching over 40 years now and things. So, yeah. So by, by the way, you know, when I first heard this story, I, I thought that the, the coach himself was white and, you know, they, the parents were not used to seeing um, a person of color being, being a coach, but it sounds like he, he was African-American. So what yeah. was the parents issue? Yeah. With- and by the he was the athletic director. Uh, yeah, um, okay. mm-hmm. I think that the, the issue was that, um, I was young and black and I was not a parent and I was not like uh, 18 years old. And I think they thought of me as a thug and, and they didn't know me and they really didn't know the things I was doing because I didn't do them there in the park. I did fight in the park occasionally, but it was only like when I was provoked or something like that or attacked, I would fight back. But they didn't know that other part of me. But I think they just made this assumption about this black boy with this big afro and everything and i i didn't i didn't present as the um acceptable black person because i did have that black power afro and i used to carry this black power pick in the back of my hair and stuff right and and uh so you could kind of tell even then that i had these politics in in at least my Mm -hmm. aesthetics and stuff um and so yeah so i think that was like the difference there were some other black coaches there but they were older they were at least in their 30s yeah yeah, no, I get it. And, you know, what I'm interested in he- here really is it's it's very clear that the people who, who are in these key roles, like teachers, um, coaches, so the personal power of just one person giving you attention and, and saying it, to, you know, saying to you that I see something in you, James, you know, I'm going to give you a chance and I'm going to stand up for you. I mean, this has tremendous power. I I told you that when I was five, I decided I wasn't going to be like my father. I I also decided I I wanted to be a good person, you know, and I didn't know what that meant. And I was, I was unbearable to live with back then. I mean, if you, if you smoke cigarettes, I treated you like you were a drug addict. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you had an occasional drink, I treated you like you were an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. you know, and so on. Cause I was so uptight. I'm not nearly as uptight as I was back then, but I was so uptight about things. And, and I was very controlling of my own personal space. But I was trying to learn and how to become a better person. And in that moment that Bill does that for me, I kind of realized this is one of the things I need to do for someone else. The same thing that Bill did for me. Uh, it has to be kind of a domino effect down the line. And so when I started coaching, I started seeing myself as a mentor. 
I didn't see myself as just a coach. And I was a success, successful coach. I won more than I lost. And, and I even won a couple of city championships. But the most important thing to me was when uh, kids wanted to talk to me after they were done coaching and the things they wanted to talk to me about. And the parents wanted to talk to me about things and ask for help with their kids. And that was the thing I wanted to do. I just wanted to be there for someone else the way that, that Bill had been there for me. I love that. And also, you know, I'm thinking you mentioned your relationship to violence and how you were actually a fighter and you were taught to fight and stand up for, for your rights, which, you know, like at the first hearing, it sounds good. Yeah, let's, let's, let's not be pushed around. But, at, you know, w when you start listening more carefully, you, you know, you're saying, you know, I was actually a danger to others. I was really violent at that point. So I'm, I'm wondering, how did you figure out that violence isn't the way? Like, when did you decide that? No. There were points in my life, because I was always trying to be introspective, and there were points in my life where I started thinking, am I really mad at this person that I'm punching, okay? Or am I mad at my parents? Am I mad at my family? Am I mad at my situation? Am I mad at racism? I mean, is this all just coming out at the end of my fist, you know, at this point? And um, I, I questioned if I should be doing this. And eventually what I did was I, I never would try to provoke a fight, but I wouldn't walk away from one. And the thing that happened was I was in high school when um, my, my girlfriend, who was a year older than me, we had got pregnant. And, and, and at that point, um, I decided, you know, we were going to have the child and I decided I cannot be like this anymore. I have to stop. But it wasn't easy because it was like this conditioned thing inside of me until like one day what happened was um, this, this friend of mine, we were playing basketball, a bunch of us on the court and we were arguing some call and he took the ball and from maybe about six feet away, threw it directly in my face and hit me in the face with it. And I knocked him to the ground. Um, I grabbed my, put my hands around his neck. And, and I started to choke him a little bit and he, and he passed out, you know, and, and I just jumped up off of him at that point and he started coughing and then he came too. but I thought, what are you doing? You could have killed this person and you're about to be a father and this person would be dead and you wouldn't be able to be there for your child. I, you cannot do this anymore. And, um, and so I, I started working on myself on trying to do away with this, 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 this these feelings and this form of violence and stuff. But it wasn't easy because I think under extreme pressure positions and, and times of being a, a low, I mean, I wasn't low income. I was poor as poor can be as a parent, you know, um, struggling to be a single parent too, because at one point me and my ex break up and stuff and, and he spends most of his time with me and, and he hasn't even spoken to his mother in probably like I think 10 years and so on because she was kind of an absentee parent. But it, it was stressful, and there was a lot of stress involved, and I would be angry at times, and the learning when and how to control that wasn't easy. So I ended up going to counseling because of an incident where um, actually um, a supervisor was at UPS. And at one point, one of my bosses told me, if you ask a single question again, I will fire you. And I'm like, so I'm not allowed to ask questions? He goes, exactly. I said, I don't think I can come to work. So they said, well, it sounds like you feel too stressed to go to work. Let's send you to a counselor. And that's when I first started seeing this counselor, which I then saw for off and on for about 30 years until recently. Right. And that helped me a lot, working through these emotional feelings that I had, this rage that I had inside of me, you know. And, um, and, I, and since then, I've worked 
to really kind of eliminate um, almost all of that. I mean, that doesn't mean I don't get mad, but I don't have to get physically violent because I'm angry or upset. This is great help when you can go to a counselor. And I was just amazed, you know, about the part of your story where, you know, you were still a, a kid and you have shown remarkable amount of, you know, self-awareness. You, you, you were telling me that you were thinking about who do I want to be? How do I want to grow up? Which is, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. This, this is a question that grown-up men come to me for advice about their life direction. And, uh, and I'm asking them this question, you know, who do you want to be? Um, but how does, like, what gave you, just to return to that question again, like what gave you, you think, the strength or the idea to be intentional about who do you want to be? Because a lot of kids go through, you know, like brothers and sisters, but, but they, they are kind of on, on, on an autopilot and, and at some point they end up in jail. Like, why were you not on autopilot, obviously? Um, there, there were a couple things. Even though my mother um, is the one who's Hungarian, my dad's the one who's black, right? Yeah. My mother wanted me to learn what does it mean to be black. My father really never taught me what does it mean to be black. So what my mother did was she knew that as a white woman, she's, that's not her place to teach me. But she read a lot. And she said, look, I want you to read. So she introduced me to like the works of like Huey Newton and Angela Davis. She didn't want me reading King. She goes, you're going to get plenty of that in high school. She goes, but read these other people. And um, reading the things that they did and the things that they had gone through also made me have a sense of responsibility to community like that. Wow. I couldn't go to the school that I go to now if it wasn't for everything that they had sacrificed for me to get here. So it's my job now to carry that forward so that the other generations can even move further ahead. So that was like one of the things that, that um, really, really um, helped me get through that and, and, and develop this idea that I need to be quote unquote different. Right. Um, I also felt like um, I didn't, I kind of turned my violence into this kind of um, defense of others sometimes, you know, like if someone was picking on a kid who was smaller or something like that, then I would step in for that kid and say, look, you want to fight him? Why don't you fight me instead? You know, and so on. And then usually that nothing would happen and people would walk away and stuff like that. But it, it, and, but it still was like this, this kind of violent way of looking at things. And, you know, and I was also at home, I was um, very defiant of, especially of my father and mostly of my father. And um, I would say things to him that, um, sometimes would um, make the family, I had a slow anger, you know, like he, he would like threaten me and stuff. And he would always say things to me like, you know, I, I, um, you're never going to be better than me. He would say that all the time. He also used to talk about how he would outlive us all. Even after he had buried two of his three sons, he kept saying, I'm still going to outlive you all. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is not the kind of man you're supposed to be. But then I would say things like, when he would threaten me, I'd say things like, well, you got to go to sleep sometime, you know, and they, and this would scare people in the house sometimes that James is kind of like, you know, waiting in the wings kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I remember one time he let my dog out and killed my dog into the street. Right. And he did it intentionally because the dog did not like him and he just left the gate open so the dog could run out. And the dog literally died in the street right in front of our house, got hit by a car and when I got home, my, my mom, I said, where's Shorty? And she goes, she goes, well, 
um, he, you know, he died and stuff. Your dad accidentally let him out. I go, that was no accident. So I was, I was about 13 years old. I'm sitting on the, the step of my house and I, I've got a bat in my hands. And my mom's like, what are you doing? And I go, I'm waiting for your husband to get home. And she called him and she goes, you know, I don't think you should come home right now. He's pretty pissed off, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I remember my sister saying something to my wife, uh, saying that when James was the scariest one in the family, and I thought, wait a minute, my dad and my brother had such bad reputations that Pacoima was a safe place for us because nobody wanted to mess with our family. And a brother went to jail for mass. And I'm the scariest one. But I think it was because I didn't always blow up angry, but I would say these things very calmly that kind of scared people at times. And at the time, it served me to keep me safe, you know, and, and to keep the beatings to a minimum, you know. Um, but I think that as I got older, I kind of realized this is not how I want to be perceived. You know, this is not who I want to be, right? And that as men, we have to stop doing this to each other. You know, um, you know, as as you know, statistically, men are most they're most likely to commit murder, and men are also the most likely to be murdered. You know, and we have to stop killing each other. And we are most likely to commit suicide. We're most likely to be abusing, you know, substance abuse, drugs, and and alcohol, and all that. Yeah, it, it is yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm really picking up this central idea of what I'm hearing from you of you know the, the intention. Who do I want to be? How do I want to show up for others? What kind of a man do I want to be? What's my legacy? What, how will I be remembered? And so can you share a little bit about um, you being a father now? Yeah. Because that's transformational. You, you, you transformed your dad and all those wounds that he caused into something else. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Know, um, I've also always tried to be better. So I have five kids of my own and a stepson. And um, my oldest son at 18 years old, I have no idea how to be a parent. I mean, none. But both my parents were horrible examples of how to be a parent. And I'm afraid of the world for my son. You know, so I'm way too controlling. I will not let him go out in the world without me alongside with him. My ex-wife had to convince me to let him go to the park at the age of 15 by himself with his friends to play basketball. That was the first time I ever let him out of my sight. And even then I said, you have to be back by five. And I was waiting at 445 on the, on the, on the steps of my um, apartment for him to come in. You know, and yeah, off. just to make sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, so I was way too controlling and I wasn't... Um, I didn't do a good job of asking questions because my son had some issues that um, were issues that 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 I didn't know about until later on in life that 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 he confessed to me later on in life and 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 um, and it caused him a lot of behavioral problems and and if I would and from that time when he told me that at 19, I learned I need to listen to my children that sometimes their bad behavior is not something I'm supposed to fix in the second but understand there might be a reason for that bad behavior, you know? And so I was better with my second son who was born nine years later. Um, and I learned to listen a little bit more and everything else and work with them and stuff. His mother was also a much more attentive mother. And then um, with my other two, my next two kids, I was even better with them, but I still, you know, had like those ideas that your kids are supposed to do what you say. 
you know, and, and then this and that and the other thing and stuff. And which is a very working class black kind of thing, you know, because, and I would say a Latino kind of thing too. And part of it is because we're always supposed to keep our kids under control so that authorities don't have to control them. You know, so it's kind of like they, they say, the, as Ansel Davis points out, that old slave mentality of no master, you ain't got to beat that baby. I'll beat that baby myself kind of thing, you know, that, yeah. that you don't have to control my kids because I've got control of them and so on. And um, and we as now that I've transitioned into like being more, quote unquote, middle class and gone to these restaurants where sometimes my wife who's also from a working class background and she's Latinx. Right. Um we, we, we'll go to these middle-class restaurants and sometimes we'll see these white kids like being really, really loud and everything else and stuff. And she'll be like, Oh God, why can't they control these kids and stuff? And then we talked about it and said, look, what they're allowing those kids to do is explore and express themselves in the world, which then makes them feel much more like the world belongs to them and that they can do anything they want, you know, in a positive way and a negative way. I said, so we got to allow our baby to do that too. If he gets a little loud in a restaurant, so what? You know, why can't he be express himself in that restaurant? So I've learned to allow that more. And we do no physical punishment, you know, and and so on. Um, we we talk to him. We try to get you know, get understand his viewpoints, give him an opportunity, but then let him know that we do make a final decision, and he 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 can choose to follow that decision or not. But if he chooses not to follow that decision, then there's a consequence, as as there is a consequence if he chooses to follow. But it is his choice. So we don't want to take away the concept of choice, but let him know that even as adults, there's consequences for not following certain rules. You know, and we're hoping that that teaches him that. And then also, I try to teach my my sons, to, and I have four sons and one daughter. Uh, and my daughter as well, but I don't have to teach her to be a feminist. She wants she's already, she wants to fight for her own rights, and please, she should have the rights of others. But uh, to teach my sons to be more feminist, and um, and they and they you know they are um, they 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 are especially particularly my my oldest one is much more conscious of racial issues and feminism. My daughter is very much as well. Two of my children are queer. And they both came out to me first before they came out to their mothers. And that's actually or before they came out to anyone else in the family. And that's actually uh, one of the yeah. things I'm proudest of because I feel like I, I must have created a space that they felt more comfortable about coming out. So I felt like I did something right. You know, I didn't ask you that way, but you're you're kind of in my head describing what modern masculinity is. And, and what you're saying to me is that, you know, it's much more about acceptance it's much it's much more about listening and you know letting kids express who they are and you know being kind of intentional about you know why am i so because you know maybe this comes from my heritage so it's also understanding as a modern man it's really important where i come from what i picked up and you know why am i doing what i'm doing now and is this really serving me well so all those kinds of things to put put them together you know they, they they sound like a pretty good description of what modern masculinity could be. Do, do you agree or do, do you have? Oh no, I, I yeah. agree with you completely. In fact, mm -hmm. one I have rules for the house that um, one of the rules that I, I couldn't implement so much with my new wife because she had different rules for her son and I and we we parent together. But in in the past and also with our son in the future, we've agreed to this that whenever we clean, our children are supposed to be cleaning with us. So they never see a woman cleaning and a man not cleaning. Um, I never, I don't like it when women clean and men don't clean. I cook and I teach my sons to cook. 
you know? And also the rule in the house is that only the men are allowed to clean the bathroom, right? And the reason why is, let's be honest, it's us who usually misses the toilet and makes it a gross thing to clean up. And by the way, as soon as you get them to clean the toilet- I don't toilet, know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, yeah. But, yeah. but as soon as you, you teach them that and they start cleaning the toilet, you will be surprised at how remarkable their aim becomes. They could hit a Cheerio from 50 yards at that point, right? And so on. All of a sudden, it's not all over the place. And this, And I tell them this, that you want to do this because we do live, talking about modern masculinity, in a different world, right? And I think it's a better world in a lot of ways, you know, and stuff. There's still a lot of things we need to fix. But women are working too, and their incomes are not just like this little cursory extra dollar. I mean, it literally is a, a serious contribution to the household, often as much and, and sometimes even more than some men. So why would we give them this second shift of work that they have to do? And I tell them, if you, I tell my students, you know, in, in my gender course and my other courses, the sexiest thing you can say to your wife is, "Honey, I'll do the dishes." You know, she'd be like, "Oh, now you're talking," you know, and so <laughs> on. And there's times when I annoy the hell out of my wife. I mean, I there's times when I know my wife is like, "Oh my God, I can't stand you a second longer." But then I know she also thinks, "Where am I also going to find a guy who cooks and cleans?" and takes care of all this childcare responsibilities so that she doesn't have to do it all the time. So we both, you know, are contributing in that kind of way. And then we don't, uh, one doesn't have to be overly tired. And I tell my kids that as you get older, people get less superficial. It's not necessarily about how much looks you have and just how much money you make, even though everyone wants to be economically secure. I understand that part, but it's also, they love a guy who can cook. I always tell them, look, for a second or third date, it's always nice to say, hey, why don't you come over and I'll cook you dinner? And they're like, oh, really? You can cook? Yep. And so on. <laughs> and that's an attractive quality that men can have, you know, that, that's in, in addition. And I think that's where modern masculinity goes. And I think also, this is the hard part too, the ability to express your emotions as men. You know, there's something you rarely ever hear a man say, uh, these two words, I'm sad. You know, they'll say, I'm mad, I'm pissed off, I'm angry, I'm happy, but they'll never say the words, I'm sad. Like, we're not allowed to be sad, but we are sad, you know? Especially not, I'm afraid, right? Like that. Oh, yeah, that's another that, that, That's a taboo, too, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm scared, I'm scared, no, you no, know, like, I, no. I don't want to do this, honey, I'm scared, <laughs> and so on, yeah. You know, it gets us to do crazy things when we're young that put our bodies in danger and stuff, and sometimes even as we get older, we're still doing these things, so yeah so it's a lot yeah. so i agree with you like i also cook and i think it's sexy especially because i do it but <laughs> no <laughs> it's it, it is it is it is a good thing to do and you know we need to think about these kinds of activities in a new light like it, it's not manly or you know it's it's humanly so that that resonates um what i also you, you know wanted to learn from you a little bit about is you know, now that you have a, a fully developed identity and a kind of a sense of mission in the world, how important is race in, in your view in all of that? Oh, um, I, I would say race is probably right. I mean, it's, it's at the top. It's at the top. I mean, you can say it's a top, you know, an intersectional perspective with gender. And also I, I look at class issues too, living a solid middle-class life as opposed to a low-income life. But particularly at a time like this with, 
you have these, you know, the killing of, of George Floyd, you know, these these rebellions all over the, not just all over the country, literally all over all the, the globe world. right now, people fighting for, you know, the, the, their rights to, to not be abused by police officers, to be seen, their humanity to be recognized. And um, I never escaped being a black man. I mean, looking at me, most people don't think of me as Hungarian. Okay, right. so I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. and yeah, as you know, there's not a lot of black Hungarians, right? So, so um, the and so it's really hard for me to maintain that Hungarian portion of myself because a lot of second generation Hungarians have assimilated into whiteness and they they, they don't speak Hungarian Hungarian and so on. I still speak Hungarian, but it's very bad because I don't get to practice it anymore. But being black is something that is part of my daily experience. You know, uh, wherever I go, even though I'm very light skinned, when people see me, they know I'm black. And mm-hmm. and um, it gets me stopped by the police. It gets me stares. It gets the clutched purses and things like that that happen to other black men. I'm also a very big guy. I'm you know I'm six foot two and stuff. So um, you know those type of things like uh, it's part of my my daily identity. And when these things first happened with George Floyd, um, I, I I mean it deeply affected me. You know I mean I, I was very emotional. I was angry. You know as 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 many black people were. And when people started looting and people started, I understood. I mean I, I'm not I'm not saying go out and loot and everything, but I'm saying also I understand righteous anger. You know, for so when when Colin Kaepernick decided to take a knee as a peaceful protest, he loses a job and gets unrelenting, uh, unrelenting criticism and death threats for it. And then all of a sudden, when when you don't listen to this peaceful protest and more black people die since then, now you, the people wonder why why are these people out there destroying property and so on? Why can't they just peacefully protest? You know, peaceful protest didn't work. You know, and, and and when you talk about the you know the concepts of my blackness and my understanding of my blackness and my mother having me read about Malcolm and so on, I understood one thing: Malcolm X is one of the reasons why you have the civil rights movement and be successful. As Lyndon Johnson himself said, he he you know, he, he stated, "Look, if we don't deal with Martin Luther King, we're going to have to deal with Malcolm X." You know, and they didn't want to deal with Malcolm X because he was talking about human rights. He wasn't talking about civil rights. And human rights are different. Human rights are this concept that every human being has a right to a quality education, to housing, to a good job, you know, and so on. Not just like the, the because as Malcolm would say, the rights, the civil rights means that you have the same rights to be oppressed under the law as white people do. Right. And we're not looking for the same rights to be oppressed under the law, you know, and so on. And it was a very different concept. So you fast forward to today, after years of fighting through the Black Power Movement, through the Civil Rights Movement, you still have police officers killing Black people who are unarmed, okay? Not just men, but women too. And then getting away with it. You know, very few of them spending jail time. Many of them not even seeing a courtroom for killing an unarmed person, you know? And this this really just kind of set people off, and and it my race will always be a very a very major portion of my identity because this is the the way I'm seen. Now bringing it back to the concept of gender, though, there's some things I have arguments with with sometimes my fellow black people, right? And and some of them agree, and some of them would disagree with me. But I point out that there's too much of a focus on black men's lives. Like in, in a community college district system, we always have programs for black men, 
But we need to, for every program for a black man, there needs to be an equal program for a black woman. Because, and I understand they, they say that black men are more oppressed than black women because they say that um, because of the racial dynamics, we're more likely to, to be incarcerated, more likely to be murdered. Now, while that's true, that doesn't mean we're more oppressed, okay? Because we don't face rape as much as black women do, okay? So that's one thing, all right? But the other thing is if a black man is murdered, his mother mourns, his sister mourns, his wife mourns. If a black man is murdered or incarcerated, it's the mother of those children who now is stuck in poverty trying to be a single parent, right? So she's in jail too in a lot of ways, the jail, you know, the jail of poverty. And we don't focus in on that enough. Plus on top of that, we need to have more of an intersectional perspective too. And we, as black people, we need to fight for LGBTQIA plus rights. And we also need to fight for undocumented rights because some of our black people are undocumented. There've been more undocumented people, uh, um, you know, that have been that have been um, deported that are black than even Latinx by their numbers, mostly from places like Haiti, right? But then also, when you talk about transgender people who are likely to be killed, it's black transgender women who are the most likely to be killed. You know, so these are our people too, and we need to also embrace them as well and say, look, your fight is our fight, you know, and our fight is your fight. You know, at the same time, instead of making them have to make that choice between their identities. You know. I think this is very important and very timely. Uh, I can't end this conversation without asking you one thing. Because of your unique identity of, you know, sort of being African-American, but also being white. So what can a, a white person do in terms of being a father of kids? What would you suggest to them? Um, I, I suggest that they, they listen. A, a good ally listens to other people. You never take the forefront of a, me, of a, of a movement. Um, if you're going to ask questions, that's fine, but don't make them gotcha questions. Make them actually questions where you're really trying to gain a greater knowledge of something. Um, accept the fact that, yes, this is a society that privileges whiteness, just like I accept that this is a society that privileges my heterosexual identity and me as a man. Don't be so fragile that you can't accept the fact that, yes, your, your whiteness is privileged within the society, right? And then work to change it. And that change is, is scary for, I think, whites because deep down inside, there, they, there, there is an acknowledgement that there's a benefit to whiteness. And to change the society would mean to give up some of that benefit, not just for them, but for their children and their children's children, right? But then at the same time, if you're going to give up that benefit, fight for a more just world, right? Which means... Why can't we all have better wages? Why, do, why are there billionaires in the world? You know, if we all got together and decided, you know what, this is ridiculous. There shouldn't be billionaires. If you can't be happy having $999 million, okay, mm -hmm. you probably just shouldn't exist, you know. But you can pay your Amazon employees more. You can pay your Walmart employees more. You can pay, you know, your Ford manufacturing employees more. Thus, white people's wages would go up and so would Black and Latinx and Asian wages go up as well. Right? Don't be afraid of change and don't be afraid of competition and just learn to listen. And we can all have a better world that's more just for all of us. Yeah, I love the listening part. And, you know, the way I, I'd like to end is to just to suggest, you know, I, I work with a lot of business owners, but, you know, now is a, a really good time to take a look at your company, take a look at your leadership team, take, take a look at your staff and just see, you know, how much diversity is there? And, you know, what, what can you do in your 
pond in your place, in your company, in your team, I think there's a lot we can do. Um, and if we each try to do it in our little circle, it's going to end up to, you know, getting a better world out there. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, James, for, for being here and being candid and, and, and open about your life. Let's continue for the shift in, in masculinity and humanity. And thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Please check our webpage at www.mentorship.com www.m-a-n-d-o-r shift.com. Join our newsletter and learn about the MentorShift coaching and other services and resources we offer. Keep listening to our podcast for more inspiration and motivation.